Today we're talking to Tyler Hinritzi, Senior Managing Director of Blackstone. Everyone knows Blackstone, one of the world's largest private equity firms. Tyler's done some amazing deals in his career, such as Hilton, the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas, G6, equity office properties. We're going to find out where Tyler's head is today and how he sees Blackstone spending their time, energy, and money in this COVID world. Thanks for joining. Uh, hey, Tyler. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, you're looking good. You're looking real. Where are you? You don't look like you're at home. You're in an office somewhere. I'm, I'm in New York. We are, uh, we are back in the office after Labor Day and happy to be here. Did you call everybody in? Is that what happened? We have invited back about a third of our workforce, which is predominantly the investment professionals. So we've got room to spread out, but um, th those teams are back. And that was after Labor Day. It's still still technically voluntary, but um, a lot of people are back and it, it feels good. Well, it's good to see you back. You're not hiding in the Hamptons anymore. N not, not hiding out anymore. I know. How, uh, how's your golf game? My golf game had been on a downward trajectory for 17 years working at Blackstone. And I think yeah. this summer, if there's one silver lining in COVID, my, my handicap uh, actually improved for the first time in 17 years. So that's uh, one small positive. I was going to say, I didn't think they let you play golf at Blackstone. It, it takes a global pandemic to, uh, to be able to go out there and play a little bit. So uh, I, I got a little bit more golf in this summer than, than usual, which is not a lot. <laughs> so, so talk about that, because I, I, I tease you that you're hanging out in the Hamptons. But, uh, you know, for guys like us, especially, hell, especially you guys, Blackstone, you're, it's work, 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 24-7, 365. So what, what have you learned in this pandemic to take a beat and – pause for a second and hang out with the family. Yeah, listen, I, I think I've always tried to have some balance in my life, but obviously that's, um, that can be difficult at a place like Blackstone that's very demanding. But, um, I, you know, I, I think COVID has given all of us an opportunity to slow down a little bit. And um, early in COVID had the opportunity with our, um, our, our oldest daughter to spend about five or six weeks with her grandparents, my parents, and some family and um you know we had time together that you, you know it's just hard to do in normal circumstances at least that that type of um that type of time and uh you know for me personally i, I think just slowing slowing down a little bit has given me an opportunity to reflect on you know what do you really care about what really matters my wife and i we had a second daughter during this which was an interesting you know time to 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 have um to have a baby but um you know, I, I, I hope, uh, you know, myself and others and people on my team that it's given all of us a little bit of a moment to step back and sort of say, geez, was, was all of the craziness before going a million miles an hour, is, is that, um, was that the right balance or not? And, and I've certainly been reflecting on that and, uh, and, and I'm hoping that on the back end of this can minimize a little bit of the craziness and make a little bit more time for, you know, friends and family and the stuff I love to do. God willing that that is the lesson we learned. I mean, I know you. I know you're a workaholic, right? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't take any time off to spend time with the family for nothing. So uh, I think it's great. I think you're supposed to. You'd never get that time back with the you know, newborn and your first daughter. And you'd never get that time back. So cheers to you. It was fun, you know. And, um, and it's still fun, you know. Like I said, we've got a, we've got a two-year-old who's, you know, a complete toddler and who's crazy. And we've got a, a newborn. And uh, so I've got my hands full with two little girls and, um, you know, but that's a, a nice new wrinkle to life. Uh, that has been um, a lot of fun. Give me one moment. Give me one favorite family COVID moment. 
Oh gosh. Um, so my, my wife and I decided not to deliver in New York City. Um, New York City's got great hospitals, but we decided to deliver out in Southampton. And um, when we were leaving the hospital, you know, it's much less of a baby factory than New York City. We decided to kind of take, take a meandering drive home. And it was just my wife and I and our, our newborn in the back. First time we'd left the hospital. It was a beautiful Saturday afternoon, and we're just sort of cruising back from Southampton to our place in Amagansett, and uh, it was just the three of us heading home to meet her uh, older sister for the first time, and it was just a really nice moment of, of, of peace and quiet, the, the three of us sort of heading to, you know, our, our, our second to be a family of four, and um, it'll, be, it'll be a nice memory. It certainly beats the heck out of... Uh, you know, leaving the hospital and jumping in a taxi in New York City and, and, and scrambling through traffic. So it was kind of a symbolic moment of calm in the middle of COVID, despite the chaos that was about to ensue with, with a, a second child. Ah, that's, that's fantastic. And again, you get to be right there with each other on top of each other. Life's slowing down a little bit. Maybe there's something we can learn from it. Absolutely. All right. So before we dive in, uh, I'm going to obviously get into what where's how's Blackstone see the world and and where you guys spending your billions of dollars and what can we the humble people learn from it but uh, I, I want to I'm gonna start with you I want to I like diving in how people got started I know the answers but share with us how did the uh, 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 small ch the humble beginnings of Tyler Henritzi as a child of the growing up in the small town of Atlanta Georgia how does he get to the big city and the big lights <laughs> Uh, um, so yeah, so, you know, Teague, as you know, uh, grew up in Atlanta. We actually went to the same high school, went to Westminster in Atlanta. Um, I grew up in a big family, uh, three sisters, two brothers, all the superstars in my family are the women. And, um, you know, growing up, I had some siblings who, um, were just amazing athletes, state champion basketball players, state champion volleyball players. I was like Mr. Average. Um, you know, I played a bunch <laughs> of sports. I got cut from a bunch of teams, but kind of played a little bit of everything. And, you know, maybe I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and sort of wanted to, you know, do something at a high level. And so after going to UVA, I decided to go to New York initially for a summer. And uh, I got to say that my first summer in New York, at least the first half of it, I was like, what is this place? I don't understand New York. This may not be for me. But I kind of got the groove down, you know, got, got the hang of things the second half of the summer. And um, it was, you know, it was, this was after 9-11. There weren't a lot of job offers. And when somebody gives you a job offer a week before your senior year of college, I, I think in 2002, you're supposed to take it. And so I, I took the job offer and started at Merrill Lynch doing real estate investment banking and, um, you know, got grounded to a pulp, but met a bunch of great people and really fell in love with New York. And I think I'd always thought I'd spend a little bit of time in New York and, and you know, earn my stripes and then maybe go back to Atlanta. Um, my father's in the real estate business. I have some other siblings in the real estate business. Um, you know, my family's important to me. Always thought I'd want to be really close to my family in Atlanta, but um, had an opportunity after a year at Merrill Lynch to, to join Blackstone. Um, funny story, I I'm out having uh, drinks with a friend of mine from UVA, and he says, yeah, we had a first-year analyst who went home for Easter break and never came back. 
And I said, what do you mean never came back? He said, just never came back. I, I, and my takeaway should have been, geez, this sounds like a terrible environment to work in. Um, but instead, maybe it was the couple of beers I had. I said, can I send you my resume? And uh, next thing I know, um, you know, I, I, I get an opportunity to start as an analyst at Blackstone. And, um, you know, I, I think what I realized pretty quickly at Blackstone was, um, you know, the, the scope uh, and the opportunity at Blackstone was tremendous. The people that I was able to work with, I expected it was going to be a bunch of jerks um, I'd, that I'd learn a lot, but I'd be working with a lot of jerks. And I think the biggest surprise for me was just the caliber of people that I got to work with. Um, they, they, you know, people wanted to work hard. They wanted to win. Um, they wanted to do right by our limited partners um, and do smart deals, but um, they wanted to do it in the right way. And, um, and, and I think that's, that's probably as much as anything, what I fell in love with about Blackstone was the, the people and the culture and being a part of kind of growing that. And so you know, a year goes by and then two years go by and you keep telling yourself, well, maybe I'll move back to Atlanta, you know, here at some point. And, you know, I've been here for 17 years and I still talk about moving back to Atlanta at some point, but I think people have stopped taking me seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll get there someday, but we, are, we haven't quit believing you. So, so, uh, well, so the, I agree with you. The good news is I've now got half my family in New York. So I've got two sisters who were both married uh, in New York and then three other siblings in Atlanta. So there's at least a balance of power between Atlanta and New York. And so get to see my parents and my siblings and their kids a lot, which is great. Yeah. You just sucked them all to you as Parker and the rest of them started following. And yeah. Brought them up, brought them up here to the dark side. Uh, yeah. They get really terrible influence. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So tell me about one of your first sort of big deals at Blackstone. What was it that you can remember? What was one of your first great deals? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of, when I first joined Blackstone, I didn't know anything about underwriting individual real estate assets, but I had spent a year at Merrill Lynch tearing apart the kind of public universe of real estate companies, REITs. So I knew a little bit about public real estate companies and at least how to kind of analyze 10Ks and 10Qs. And around 2004, when I joined, John Gray was playing a bigger role within our business and really was starting to think about how we could pivot from thinking about individual assets to buying companies. And um, I, there, you know, there were, there were a couple of deals at the time that, you know, my head was spinning because, you know, these were big companies. Wyndham is, is one that comes to mind. Um, I remember um, I was asked, we, we need to figure out a way to basically go and see about 20 different hotels and 20 different markets over a four or five day period. And, um, you know, as a 24, 25 year old, I, I, you know, I hadn't done that much travel in 10 years. And all of a sudden we were talking about in a four or five day period needing to zip around and see all of these, you know, amazing hotels uh, around the country. And, um, and, and, and that, was, that was one deal that I think was, um, uh, it, was, it was early on kind of in our transition from buying individual assets to buying companies you know, on the heels of that, we ended up buying Car America, which was a, an office REIT based in D.C. Then we bought Trizac. And then the, the kind of the mother of all deals was when we bought EOP. And, and I, I think that that's a deal I'll never forget. I mean, our, our entire team basically coalesced around that one opportunity. There was nothing else that was happening except buying EOP. And, um, you know, even today, fast forward to 2020, thinking about buying a, a $39 billion business is just mind-boggling and it was certainly mind-boggling at the time and it was certainly mind-boggling to me and I, I was 
you know, just happy to be a part of the team that, that kind of worked on it and then got to work on some of the sales out of that. And uh, it was uh, a wild, a wild ride, especially when we got into kind of a bidding, um, bidding war with, with one of our competitors. I remember you when that happened, you were in the bidding war, but, uh, and it was equity office properties for those who don't know, BOP, but was it a good deal? Was it worth it? Yeah, good question. So um, I think that it, it, A, it was a good deal. Um, it, uh, we, we set up the deal just before the downturn. We were fortunate enough to sell off uh, a significant amount of the real estate, which we uh, utilized to buy down our basis. And, um, and we were sort of high-fiving each other, thinking that we were in the chips and then the world melts down. So we wrote down our investment pretty dramatically and it didn't feel so great in 08 and 09 and the early part of 010, but we, um, we held strong. Uh, we stuck to the business plan. We didn't panic and sell assets in the downturn. We felt like what we had um, held on to was some great assets in LA um, and uh, an asset in New York, some assets in Boston. And, um, and we just sort of battened down the hatches and executed our business plan. And, and we had to write down the investment pretty significantly, but then we wrote it back up and we ended up more than doubling our money um, on the overall deal. But it was, um, it was certainly not without some harrowing moments in the downturn. But, um, you know, I think you also learn in those moments to, um, you know, not freak out, not panic, stick to your knitting, have conviction. If you, if you bought great real estate, you know, continue to reinvest in it, execute your business plan, and, um, and, and you know, the, the markets will recover, and they did. So, uh, one, kudos to you guys. But let's other deals. And the other one that comes to mind that you bought at the peak of the market, uh, more famous for our industry, is with Hilton. We bought that in 08? We, we probably bought Hilton at the absolute worst possible time you could buy a hospitality business. I mean, we, we looked like um, the dumbest people on planet Earth at that moment in time. But, um, you know, really credit to... John Gray and Ken Kaplan and Rob Harper, a couple of my partners, um, you know, I think what they recognized was that in addition to just owned real estate, owned assets like the Waldorf, the business had this unbelievable asset light management and franchise business and these tremendous brands, you know, in addition to Waldorf and Hilton, you know, Hampton Inn, Hilton Garden Inn and the likes, Conrad. And they really felt like this was a company that had global brand awareness, but had really not captured and taken advantage of that. And so again, despite buying the business at, a, at, a, at the worst possible time, we brought in what we think of as one of the best um, CEOs on planet Earth, Chris Nassetta, to help run the business. And he really realigned the culture of the company around a singular mission and really accelerated the growth of the asset light management and franchise business, and particularly internationally, but also in the US. And so huge growth in uh, Europe, uh, in Asia and China, uh, and in the U.S. as well. And, um, and so as a result, while it was a bit painful during the downturn on the owned real estate, the asset light side of the business grew like a weed. And again, um, we, we, I think we wrote our investment there down uh, to about 30 cents on the dollar, ultimately held on to, um, held on to the business, um, did, a, did a restructuring during the downturn that bought us a little bit more time on our debt so that we could wait and sell the business at an opportune time and then ultimately took the company public again and then sold down our stake over a couple of years and, and we ultimately tripled our money in hilton despite the fact that we we bought the business at a tough time and i, I think the two takeaways from both eop and hilton is um 
you know, you, you don't have to be a market timer if you buy great businesses and great assets and you execute your business plan. Um, alternatively, you know, there, there are deals we've done where we think we bought them, you know, bought assets cheap at the bottom and, uh, and, and, and there, we should have never bought them period. And, um, and I think there's lessons in that as well, just about, you know, high quality real estate um, and great leadership, you know, in, in, in both instances, but Hilton in particular, we just had uh, tremendous leadership in Chris Masetta that um, really helped propel the business and uh, create a lot of value for our investors. Yeah, yeah, I think it's why you guys are, again, best in class. Uh, anyone can do it when it's easy. Uh, you guys are rolling up your sleeves, really fixing businesses. Uh, and hiring the set is, uh, doesn't hurt. Uh, it makes you look really smart. And it's, listen, it's, it's easy when the going gets tough to sort of doubt yourself and, and think, geez, what did, we, what did we just do? But um, like I said, you know, a couple of my partners, John and Ken Kaplan, I mean, that really, uh, and Chris Masetta, I think really, had conviction in the quality of the business that we bought in the case of Hilton. And, and despite those dark days and dark moments, um, you know, kept people focused uh, on executing and didn't, didn't panic. And I, I you know, I, I took away a lot of lessons from that. So, so the other deals you've done, I guess you guys have fallen in love with brands, right? You bought G6, Motel 6. You bought La Quinta. Yeah. We, we love the brand business. It's gotten a lot harder these days to, to uh, compete with some of the big conglomerates just because of their systems and their investment in technology. But over the years, we've owned Extended Stay America a couple of times. We've bought and sold it um, a couple of times. We owned uh, La Quinta. We owned Motel 6. Um, we owned Hilton and their portfolio of brands. Um, we own the Cosmopolitan today, which is a singular asset, but we think about it as a brand as well. And, and um, uh, you know, it's a, a, the leading, what we think of as leading gaming asset in Vegas. And um, so we, we, we love the asset light brand business or controlling those brands as part of a hospitality investment, but certainly harder to find those opportunities today. Uh, yeah, so let's go there. What, what are we looking at today? I mean... You guys don't buy pieces of real estate. You buy companies, as you said. So what are we looking at today? Yeah, good good question. So, you know, when I think about my job sort of leading our acquisition efforts in the Americas, I really think about it as trying to identify what are the demographic and technological shifts that are happening, big shifts, and how do those parlay into uh, demand headwinds or tailwinds for different real estate asset classes. And so I've spent a lot of my time in the hospitality space, but sort of help oversee everything we do today within our acquisitions business. And we're constantly trying to identify those new themes and trends. And so before the global financial crisis in 07 and 08, our business was very heavily concentrated in office and hospitality. It was probably about two thirds spread between office and hospitality. We talked about two big deals in EOP and, and, um, uh, in Hilton. Coming out of the downturn, we really started to look at the world and say, okay, what, what's changing? What's shifting? Maybe as a result of the 0809 downturn and try to capitalize on some of those themes and trends that we saw that were emerging. A very significant one uh, was, was the shift towards consumer per, you know, preferences to buying online. And you know that, that sounds sort of like a no-brainer today, but in 2011, we really started very aggressively buying logistics and warehouse assets, purely premised on the simple thesis that people were shopping differently. And those goods that you buy on Amazon all have to go through a logistics warehouse. And the, um, we have continued to keep our foot on the accelerator because we don't see those trends 
dissipating. In fact, we see them continuing to accelerate. So today we own 860 million square feet of industrial around planet Earth. It's probably one of our highest conviction global themes. Obviously, pricing has gotten uh, much tougher to generate sort of the opportunistic returns that we've been able to over the last seven or eight years in the strategy. But I'll give you one statistic, which I think sums up how the tailwinds in this uh, sector are as strong as ever. Um, in the first half of 2019, Amazon leased 7 million square feet of space. In the first half of 2020, when a lot of real estate was licking their chops, trying to figure out which way was up, Amazon leased 58 million square feet. Um, I mean, th those numbers are staggering. Um, by, by one broker estimate, Amazon is under construction with 100 million square feet right now that will deliver over the next 15 to 18 months. So if you think about, you know, maybe COVID is, is further gas on that fire, uh, you know, further accelerant of the consumer's desire to buy online. But clearly, if you look at Amazon as one proxy and a pretty important proxy for the industrial business, um, you know, their leasing demand is, it's, I didn't even believe the statistics the first time um, one of my colleagues sort of sent it to me. I said, I don't think those are right. And um, he really dug in and, and, and vetted them. And it, it's pretty overwhelming. So, you know, it's, it's those sort of mega themes that we're trying to um, identify and get ahead of. Um, we took a public company private in um, uh, about five, five or six years ago called Biomed. And what Biomed does is they own, lease, and build office space exclusively for pharmaceutical and life science companies. And we saw a trend towards certain concentrated demand pockets, specifically in San Francisco, Seattle, San Diego, and Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, where there was a real concentration of talent in and around the life science and biopharmaceutical space. And we wanted to be the leading owner of, of office space that catered specifically to those companies because what they need is slightly different than what we at Blackstone need. They do uh, very high precision testing. They need a higher air handling capacity and, um, and they really need their, their space um, you know, safe and secure for, for that type of work. And as you can imagine, you know, on the back end of COVID, the demand for that type of, of space is in significant demand. And so we, we, we are... Um, excited about that platform and trying to figure out other things to do. You know, another theme that I think has emerged more recently that we've been active in, and we did, I think, one of the larger post-COVID deals, we, we recapped Hudson Pacific's portfolio of studio, um, uh, uh, studio spaces in, in and around Hollywood and LA. So think of, uh, these are basically sound stages and office space that cater towards the content creation economy. So Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, et cetera, are all pumping out content while we're all sitting at home trying to figure out how to get through COVID, um, watching all of this stuff. And um, our, our thesis is there's, uh, there, there has not been enough new supply in that space relative to demand for it. And to own that type of high quality real estate in the, the, the dead center of LA, um, right where all the talent is, is gonna be a really valuable asset on the back end of COVID, especially as content creation starts kicking back up again and people are looking to replenish these content libraries that we've all kind of watched and depleted over the last three or four or six months, and they haven't been able to film new products. So that's another theme or thesis that we're, you know, we're excited about. And, and candidly, there are, there are some historical things that we were overweight towards, which are tricky right now. And I, I you know, that we're trying to sort of sort through, I mean, you know, traditional office space right now, there's a lot of questions I think around, you know, what is, um, what is the health and relevance of office space 
in a world where you know people can do calls like like this and um you know we, we're not we're not in the camp that everybody's gonna um do all their business over zoom but um we're asking ourselves those questions you know which markets which type of office assets will be most impacted positively or negatively i think we're a little bit more constructive that the the creativity that comes out of being physically in close proximity to your colleagues is really critical, especially for a lot of the creative and technology-driven companies that um, are in some of the markets that we like to focus on. You know, think Seattle, LA, San Francisco. But um, there's there's real questions there, and there's there's differences of opinion, and um, I think it's those differences of opinion that create opportunity for people that can take a take a view on one side of that or the other, and and say, you know what, I don't. I'm not convinced everybody's going to work from home forever and always. I, I think there's opportunity there, and we're and we're 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 looking at some of that right now. I mean, how do you guys see yourselves in the near future, maybe even the long future? But are you guys fundamentally net buyers or net sellers in the hospitality world? I, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity over the next year or two, and I think people forget how long sometimes these distress cycles take to play out. There's an anxiousness early on. People want to deploy capital. We've been a bit more patient. We did buy a, a pretty sizable amount of public equities uh, in the hospitality space. Some of those rebounded really quickly. Um, we didn't expect for those to be a trade, but we did sell out of some of those after they rebounded um, very quickly. Some of them have come back off. Um, we're, looking at, we're looking at a lot of opportunities and tracking a lot of situations in the hospitality space. I think there's going to be a ton of opportunity but also are, are comfortable being patient. And um, there's not a lot that's transacting right now. Uh, the few assets that have maybe, you know, depending on if it's sort of select service or full service, you know, some of the full service, you're seeing slightly bigger discounts of 30, 35% to pre-COVID levels, but, um, but not a ton of volume. And um, a lot of people I think are working with their lenders right now, um, getting forbearance agreements in place to kind of kick the can down the road a little bit. But I think there's going to be, a, a lot of opportunity in the hospitality and leisure space. And uh, we are, um, you know, trying to position ourselves to get in front of as many of those opportunities as we can, but also being patient, recognizing that, you know, we're, we're not willing to underwrite a V-shaped recovery where things just sort of bounce back. You, you've seen a bit of a, 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 a bit of a bounce back off the bottom today. And the stock market certainly has had a very healthy recovery, but I think in terms of the operating fundamentals within our hospitality portfolio, based on what we see in our own assets, and I think we've got pretty good insights there. Um, you know, we think it's much more of kind of a square root or a, you know, maybe a Nike swoosh type of recovery. And we're more than happy to deploy capital, assuming we can underwrite a scenario like that. But if, if you've got to underwrite things snapping back overnight, uh, you know, my guess is we're not going to deploy a lot of capital. But I, I, I think we will, and I think there's going to be a lot to do. Uh, only a Blackstone guy would use a square root analogy for the shape <laughs> of our recovery, but I'll, I digress. Um, so, so I agree with you. So, I, you know, for my ask, my I would think you guys would be out buying companies left and right. I mean, that's what you do, right? So, and I know you got your eye on all of them. I know you're watching everybody. It's what you guys do. You did make a, a couple of the plays in ESA and others, which turned out you look like geniuses. And I'm assuming you did that because the stock was easier to own, get in and out of rather than buying the actual company were maybe a little trickier. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think since 1998, we have taken private 38 public companies and uh, it's been a huge part of our business. I think that those 38 companies represented about $170 billion in asset value, but it's not easy. You need um, the stars to align. 
you need a, uh, a willing management team and a board that wants to transact. The price you offer has got to be compelling and at a premium to where the stock trades on the screen. There are a lot of costs and expenses that go into taking private, a public real estate company. And so the stars have to align. And, um, you know, there, there was a lot of dislocation in, um, you know, the, certainly the early part of the summer. And, um, and because some of those opportunities we didn't think were necessarily immediately actionable, we did decide to, to just buy public equities because um, we felt like we could, we could make attractive returns to our investors that way. And they were companies we generally knew really well. You mentioned Extended Stay America. I mean, you know, this was not just a, a company on the screen that we didn't know anything about. We had taken the company private and we um, we sold it and then bought it again and relisted it. We knew this company very, very well. And um, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of companies that, um, you know, we always are, are uh, think uh, as, as attractive targets that we would love to own. Um, but it, again, it takes a, a willing seller and, um, you know, it's not as easy as just hitting a button and buying a, a share of stock. And so, um, you know, sometimes you just see in these moments of total dislocation, management teams and boards don't necessarily just say, okay, you know, let's sell here at the bottom. Uh, they, they want to do right by their investors and maximize value. And so, um, you know, again, got to be a little bit patient on our side, but there's, um, we're always trying to stay in front of those opportunities and, um, we, um, uh, we've got a good bit of capital sort of that we're um, excited about figuring a home for and um, constantly talking to a number of public companies. You, you'll get something done. I'm confident. Uh, I'll pay attention to the headlines. Uh, so talk about dispos. Talk about your head. I'll, I'll give you credit, uh, big time credit, because you guys were well ahead of the game in 18, 19 in disposing of a lot of your at least hospitality real estate. I'll speak for us. Uh, I don't know if you saw something on the horizon or it just cycle had been too long, but you guys were very successful in getting rid of a disposing of a bunch of real estate of that. Um, talk about that a little bit. And then what's the, where's your head in the future? Yeah. I mean, you know, we didn't have a crystal ball, but we sort of always feel like there's um, you really, you really can't ever solve for every risk that's out there. Um, you know, the, the easiest way to solve for risk is execute your business plan, not be emotional. And once you've executed your business plan, sell it. We've got a simple saying, buy it, fix it, sell it, at least as it relates to our opportunistic strategy. And so, you know, you, you, you guys at Teague were very helpful in um, helping us dispose of a big chunk of our um, lodging portfolio. And uh, it wasn't because we necessarily saw the end of the cycle coming. We were seeing rising labor costs and uh, an increased supply. And, and we did feel like the cycle had been going on long. Um, but, um, and, we, and, we, and we did lighten our load, but we also made some new investments. Um, you know, we bought Great Wolf Lodge a year ago. And, um, you know, that business has been, um, like any hospitality investment, has been um, challenged over the last three months. But we, we are confident that as a leisure-oriented, drive-to, relatively affordable offering, um, that the demand for that product will be tremendous. And our, our rates, our average daily rates, even though we're operating with capped occupancy levels um, in August was actually higher than what it was the year before, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. And so the demand is there. Um, we just need to, um, you know, be able to get back to normal. But on the dispo side, um, I, you know, I think it was more luck than anything else. We, we just felt like we'd executed our business plan in the case of, um, you know, a half a dozen or, you know, dozen or so assets. And, and a lot of our limited service and select service portfolio. Um, but, um, you know, we, we've still got our, our healthy share of, 
hospitality assets that we're working through right now. But, but I do think on a relative basis, we kind of came into this downturn uh, or into COVID with a much reduced hospitality exposure than what we have had historically. And we feel yeah. fortunate for that. Uh, yeah, better lucky than good, maybe, right? Absolutely. Um, but, so, but keep going with that. I want to know your head on the Dispo side. And we can pick on limited service stuff or hell, we'll pick on the Cosmo if you want. But where's your Dispo, head of Dispo? You're gonna, uh, you know what? The world's moved away from these assets. Let's just go ahead and trade at whatever the market is today. Or no, 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 we're going to hang on for two, three years uh, before this world comes back because we're Blackstone and we have all the money in the world. We, we are in no rush to sell. I, I think we're seeing pretty good pricing on the kind of um, the far economy end of the spectrum. So we're, we're seeing, you know, um, still pretty healthy liquidity uh, in, in our sales, say out of Motel 6. Uh, but as you move towards the full service side of things, we have no interest in selling right now. Um, we don't have to sell right now. We don't want to sell right now. Um, most of the assets we own, we're believers in. I mean, take Hawaii, for example, the Grand Wailea in Hawaii. Unfortunately, Hawaii is all but shut down uh, from, from any sort of tourism into the, into the market. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a tough period right now. But um, I can tell you, you know, owning that asset, Fee Simple, on the beach in Wailea is truly irreplaceable. It's going to have a better day. And we've got the, um, uh, we've got the capital to make sure that we can hold on to that asset and, and sell, you know, at the right time, not in this environment. And I think the same would be true for something like the Cosmopolitan. You know, we're, we're big believers in that asset. It's, it's actually, um, you know, based on the latest update, I, I'd say it is um, similar to Great Wolf, again, with lower occupancy caps than you're able to normally operate at, um, ha has been generating average daily rates in excess of what it did a year ago. We actually had gaming volumes for the month of August uh, both from a table games and a slot standpoint that were actually right in line with what we did the same month the prior year. Obviously, the restaurant business is really slow. The retail business is all but done. The nightclub business is all but shut down. And we're only able to sell about half of our rooms. So, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not making as much money as we had a year before. But the asset has been cash flow positive every, ass, every month since it reopened. And our, our budget now for the, the, the year um, – is up significantly from what we had forecasted back in June. So again, not to sort of like, you know, jump up and down and high five yourself, but I'd say that, um, that we believe there's an enormous amount of pent up demand for leisure and transient, transient oriented demand. Group's gonna be slower, but your specific question, we're, we're in no rush to sell, we're gonna be patient. And, um, you know, we've, we, we've, I, don't, I can't say we've been to this movie before, but as I referenced with EOP and Hilton, we have, we have seen these moments of dislocation before. And uh, as long as we believe in the assets and believe fundamentally in the real estate that we have, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to sit tight and, and hold on for a better day. So pick on, I want to keep going down this. So, cause I agree with you. Uh, economy is on top, uh, luxury is on the bottom, you know, the inverted world that we're in right now. It's great to hear that, uh, the, we know the leisure travel is coming back with Great Wolf. It's great to hear the Vegas travelers sort of coming back, those people. We still need the business traveler to come back for our industry. That person is nowhere in sight. Absolutely. I mean, you know, listen, I think pre-COVID, um, if you thought about sort of the segment mix, it was basically 50% business transient. I think it was 30% leisure and 20% group. 
And that's pretty much flipped. It's now 60% leisure, 30% business transient, and, and 10% group. And you know, when I think about like the the when I look at hospitality assets or we're thinking about um, the relative risk of making new investments, I really think about it along kind of three um, three metrics. One, is it a uh, drive to or fly to asset? If you got to get on an airplane today, unfortunately. Um, that's just another decision that the consumer has to make that they're not willing to make right now. So that's sort of one metric. Number two, um, what's your mix of business? Is it a purely leisure transient oriented asset or are you surviving based on group business alone? Obviously, as we talked about, very different dynamic there. And then the last one, which you touched on is cost structure. Um, you know, there's just a lot more labor, a lot more operating uh, leverage in a luxury asset than there is in an economy service asset, your break-even um, occupancy thresholds are a lot lower for limited service and economy segment hotels. And, um, and, as, and so as a result, those assets from a profitability standpoint and a cash flow standpoint have weathered this storm a little bit better. So the, those are sort of the three paradigms I think you can kind of, you can kind of look at the entire hospitality universe through and, and, and answer who's, who's performing better or worse, at least in this environment, from a cash flow and profitability standpoint. How, how long do you think that remains? And when does this change? Is it post-election? Is it post a vaccine? Or is it still a long, long slog before we get anywhere? Yeah, I, I think, um, again, I think that you're already seeing people on an individual basis make decisions about travel, um, you know, one-off here and there that sort of shows a, a sort of at an individual level a comfortness traveling. I think people, people want to travel. And um, I, I don't think that long term is going to dissipate. Um, I think our view is that on the group side, you know, 2021 is going to be another slow year. And um, I think my personal view is that on the group side, you, you could see a, a real rebound in 2022. But I, I think even with a vaccine um, sooner than that, I think 2021, as far as group business, is going to be a bit tepid. And people are going to punt on, um, you know, having big, large format type meetings. and um, but I, but I think you could see a real recovery in 2022. We, I would say on a fundamental level, we still believe in the basic human desire to gather and connect with people, um, you know, both on a personal level for fun and from a group standpoint. And yes, there's going to be some meetings that you don't need to fly cross country for that you can do, you know, like we're doing here. But I think that um, we are not in the camp that, you know, the long-term basic human desire to travel and connect and be with like-minded people and, you know, talk about business or go to weddings or go to conventions is, is going to be impaired in the, in the long, you know, in the long term in, in a meaningful way. I, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Amen. Um, uh, Tyler, give me some generic words of wisdom uh, that you got out there for everybody before I let you go, before I let you run. Tell me what you're thinking. Words of wisdom. Um, I would say, you know, when I was in college and took a bunch of real estate classes or finance classes, you know, whenever I had to take a class on organizational behavior, I thought it was a complete waste of time. And it's probably only been in the last five years at Blackstone that I've appreciated the power of having a team and a culture that's really all aligned around a common mission. And I used to think that was all happy talk and sort of cheesy and BS. And, I, I, you know, I think I've really seen it through this um, dislocation when our team at least on our acquisitions team in the U.S., about 60 people, it's all been working remotely. Um, you, I think your culture is kind of put to the test and you really see what people are made of. And, um, 
I, I've been blown away at just the caliber and, and thoughtfulness of our team uh, during this challenging period of time. We haven't stopped playing offense. We've, we've had to play our share of defense, but we haven't, you know, haven't stopped playing offense. And, um, you know, people have really come together and been supportive of each other, even as we're all, you know, staring at each other on computers all day long. And so, I, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, I would just say that, uh, you know, it's only reinforced further my belief that, you know, culture and having the right team is, is ultimately makes, you know, it makes my, it makes me look good, makes Blackstone look good and makes me really proud. So that, that's, that's probably maybe, uh, I don't know if it's words of wisdom or stating the obvious, but it's been reinforced in my mind, the importance of that uh, over the last six months. Yeah. Uh, amen to that too. And I'll echo the Hunter team has kept us afloat and alive and motivated uh, during these struggling times. It's unique. We don't know what we're doing. Um, and you come up with creative ideas like Teague talks and the like, which, you know, have been very well received. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to not try to quit my day job and go join the industrial warehouse world right now <laughs> as we hang up. <laughs> hang, hang tight. You know, there's going to be uh, in, industrial assets are trading at four caps. There's, there's not a lot of meat left on the bone. I think you're, I think you're in a good spot in terms of investment activity over the next year or so. So, you know, uh, where there's dislocation, there's opportunity and, and you're right in the middle of it. So I, I think you're going to be, you're going to be very busy and, and Teague's going to be very busy. We hope we're rolling up our sleeves. We're working our tails off right now. We're ready for the production to show up, but yeah, it'll, it's going to come. It's going to come. Great. It'll be here soon enough, right? It should. Who knows? All right. Stay safe. Tyler, you're a great friend. Uh, hey to the family. Hey to everybody. And uh, keep fighting the fight at Blackstone. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, brother. See ya. See ya.